Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Proponents and opponents of measures to reform big tech are busy this spring on Capitol Hill, and the fight over proposed antitrust regulation in particular is heating up. In this episode, we'll hear two short interviews that provide a window into the effort to influence lawmakers. The first segment is with Drew Harwell, a technology reporter for The Washington Post, who shared the byline on a story last week on a campaign by Meta, the company that operates Facebook and Instagram, to besmirch its rival, TikTok in part as a way to bolster Meta's arguments against antitrust reforms. And in the second segment, we'll hear from Charlotte Slayman, Competition Policy Director at Public Knowledge, a nonprofit that works on tech policy issues. Prior to joining Public Knowledge, Charlotte was a lawyer in the Anti-Competitive Practices Division at the Federal Trade Commission. First up, Drew Harwell. My name is Drew Harwell. I'm a tech reporter at The Washington Post. So Drew, you had a much-discussed piece this week with Taylor Lorenz, Facebook paid GOP firm to malign TikTok. So someone came through with some emails that gave you some insight into this particular effort. What exactly happened? So there's this, you know, Republican strategy communications firm called Targeted Victory that has worked with Meta, you know, owner of Facebook for a long time. They coordinated this very anti-TikTok press campaign that involved not just sort of gathering every piece of, you know, every piece of bad press about TikTok from lots of different media markets across the country and involved, you know, using kind of like campaign helper operative PR types and, and lots of lots of states across the U.S., but also involved, you know, helping draft letters to the editor that were, you know, supposedly from concerned parents saying, TikTok is scary and sent those out to, you know, local newspapers, TV outlets. They pushed these what they call bad TikTok clips about pretty much everything under the sun that would be negative for TikTok. But a lot of them were these kind of moral panic stories about how TikTok is this haven for slap a teacher challenges, just like kooky teen stuff. Some of them, you know, were like local news stories that seemed, you know, fairly legitimate, like normal parent concerns that a lot of parents have about social media. But some of them were about these totally made up challenges, like the slap a teacher challenge. This was something that was not on TikTok, was written about as it was something on, on TikTok, but had actually just been sort of like a rumor that had started on Facebook. And so it, you know, it was this whole dirt slinging campaign that was based off these dubious stories that targeted victory at Meta's behalf was sort of filtering across the country. What was the company trying to do with this campaign? Why in the world would they want to do this? So we can see specifically from the emails that the campaign directors were saying, our goal is to say, hey, Meta's in the hot seat right now, right? But the real threat is TikTok. Here's this company that is foreign owned. TikTok is owned by a a Chinese company called ByteDance that is using personal data of young people, much like a lot of social networks we know of, including Facebook. And uh, so their goal was really to say, you know, 
we, we get that meta as the punching bag now, but let's let's make somebody else the punching bag for once. So, you know, that was part of it. A, a couple of big, other big parts of it, though, were one, meta is facing, you know, a big antitrust push, right? There's there's regulators in D.C. and across the country who are saying this company is too big. Let's break it up. Let's pass some regulation. So you can even see in the emails, too, where the directors of the campaign are saying, hey, bonus points if Part of this campaign involves saying that the proposals that lawmakers are looking at now about antitrust that would tackle Facebook, that those are wrongheaded, that what they really should be focusing on is TikTok. All of this is at the backdrop that TikTok is ascendant and Meta is losing uh, audience, losing cachet. Facebook, you know, earlier this year announced that it had lost users for the first time in its 18-year history. Meanwhile, TikTok is one of the fastest growing, most downloaded apps around the world. It's, you know, got a a cultural presence that uh, Facebook would love to have and does not have. And so this was, you know, a bit of competitive uh, skullduggery where, you know, Facebook saw a way to use its political networks to take its competition down a peg. You point out that it sort of worked. I mean, they they apparently helped to influence uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, to write a letter calling on TikTok executives to testify in in front of the Senate, including some choice words about uh, its promotion of behaviors that are harmful and destructive. To some extent, Facebook got what it paid for. It's hard to really know in a vacuum how much of this would have just sort of blossomed organically without Meta. Uh, shifting their weight around. But yeah, I mean, they helped foster these stories. They helped promote these stories in local news. You, you, And you saw these across the country. So it's hard to know, like, were these actually just concerned parents who heard about something, whisper campaign, kind of rumor thing? Or was this really, uh, you know, Meta using this very powerful, you know, targeted victory has been around for a long time. There's a reason that it's one of the, you know, highest paid Republican sort of campaign beneficiaries in D.C. It it works with a lot of Republicans, including pretty much every Republican in office, you know. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's worth to say that it was effective. It was effective at, you know, using, I will say, the media, including us, including the local media and The Washington Post and others to filter these stories out and kind of paint TikTok as this is haven of naughty teens. So targeted victories founder uh, did point out that the Washington Post has published articles on some of these uh, TikTok challenges uh, and including the uh, slap a teacher challenge, apparently, as recently as October of 2021. And he really pushed back against your reporting, you know, said that uh, uh, they tried to reach out to you, but didn't get a response, um, said that you and Taylor are both Democrats and, you know, went on to kind of discount the the story. Uh, what did you make of that response? Uh, so yeah, I'll start with the Democrat thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm a reporter. I have written critically about TikTok in the past and been called a Republican. So um, I cherish that kind of attack. You know, the part about them reaching out and wanting to talk to us, you know, we have a statement from them in the story. Uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, he, you know, tried to get us to talk in a way that we could not use long, long after deadline, it would not have changed the story. This is kind of par for the course for working with PR people, but I I just found that kind of interesting. 
but for them to sort of point out the the media complicity in this, I think there is something interesting there because, you know, the media is not innocent in this. Like we play a part in uh, f- uh, filtering these moral panics to to the public. You know, there are bad stories and we can't control every one of them. This thing we call journalism is just a first draft. Like we are just responding. We, we get it wrong. I get it wrong all the time. We, we try and do the best we can. But what I found kind of interesting about his response was they were kind of holding themselves out as innocent observers in this process. Hey, we're just passing the message along. When really what we can tell from the emails was that they were actively, actively shaping this narrative and actively promoting TikTok as this, you know, bad actor with stories that were just dubious, right? And, and, and we're helping sort of push those dubious stories. So I just found that kind of interesting, you know, that they play a part in this like we do, but they played an active role in helping push these dubious stories, actively trying to, to again, take down the competition for a business, for a business maneuver. So you've seen a variety of different people respond to this story. Um, I thought one that was interesting was Randy Weingarten, uh, who had a tweet thread last night, of course, the uh, American Federation of Teachers president really pointing out that this is a sort of cynical campaign that ultimately sowed uh, fear in the minds of parents, teachers, principals across the country, really kind of calling out Facebook for this behavior. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. There are legitimate questions to ask about TikTok. TikTok is very new. It is, it is shaping a lot of kids' lives. You know, that is not in dispute. And so to know that there's like purposefully, you know, concocted, like shaped information that's going out there to maybe confuse the image. I I think that's problematic. And I'm glad she called it out, right? Like, really, what this sort of mudslinging did was distract from real issues and helped sort of make this, you know, fair debate about social media and and kids lives and and how it's how it's affecting schools and and adults lives, right? Um, it kind of made this into a more sort of crass, like Pepsi versus Coke kind of thing. I, I was glad she called that out. And I'm glad that we're having a conversation about TikTok. And I want it to be about <laughs> legitimate questions and not just like slap a teacher bogus nonsense. I mean, there have been just even this week, the Wall Street Journal sort of re-upped some of its reporting on TikTok related ticks and other reported disorders, uh, possible kind of neurological effects of too much use of TikTok among teen girls in particular. So there are some real harms here. Yeah. And, you know, what I find interesting is that Facebook is pointing these out, right? Like they are, they are social media. There are harms on both sides, not to oversimplify it, but it's just interesting to me that Facebook would go to this, to this, you know, Facebook has been tarred and feathered for, for many years, for a lot of elements, you know, as we all know, uh, related to social media. There are questions about harms of, of using Facebook as well, kids and adults, right? And we, we don't even have time to list them. So, you know, and maybe some of them are overblown, just like maybe some of them about our, uh, TikTok are overblown. And so I think it's worthwhile to assess these each on the merits and not just conflate all of these into one big kind of attack dog push as Facebook did. So more transparency and uh, more facts. Yeah. Well, Drew, thank you very much for speaking to me. Yeah, thank you for having me.
If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Yesterday was Antitrust Day, a day of action proclaimed by more than 100 civil society groups and businesses advocating for the passage of two proposed bills. The first is the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which is H.R. 3816 in the House and S. 2992 in the Senate. It would prevent self-preferencing by the big tech firms, including favoring their own products or putting rivals and other businesses at a disadvantage using their platform power. The second is the Open App Markets Act, H.R. 5017 and S. 2710 which its sponsors say would protect developers' rights to reach tech consumers via app stores controlled by big tech firms, in addition to a number of other protections. To learn more about Antitrust Day, I spoke with Charlotte Slayman. I'm Charlotte Slayman. I'm the Competition Policy Director at Public Knowledge. Okay, and today, Charlotte, I understand that you are helping to coordinate a variety of different civil society groups that are advocating in favor of legislation to rein in big tech companies to essentially do antitrust reform. What is going on? Yes. So we have over a hundred public interest organizations and businesses that are coming together today. We're calling it Antitrust Day. We are really concerned about the power of um, the big tech platforms. And I think it's making it really difficult for consumers to have a choice and for businesses to uh, provide a disruptive alternative, which is what we really want. Um, And there is some great legislation in Congress right now that uh, has bipartisan support and really has a shot. So we're coming together today to support that legislation. So the, the website for Antitrust Day is antitrustday.org slash action. And you can go there to email your congressmen and senators and tell them to support the American Innovation and Choice Online Act and the Open App Markets Act. Can you say a little bit about who the groups are and name a couple of the businesses that are involved? Yes. Um, So I'm here representing public knowledge. Um, We are a nonprofit working in the public interest. Big tech and competition is an issue that we've been working on for several years now. Um, you know, Fight for the Future is um, one of the great grassroots organizations that's been doing a lot of the work here, putting this together. Some of the businesses are um, DuckDuckGo, Yelp, Sonos, Proton Mail, some, you know, really privacy protective businesses and, and folks that are trying to offer consumers an alternative. Um, but I think what they are finding is that the power of big tech uh, is making things really hard for them. So we're going to talk a little bit about two particular bills, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act and the Open App Markets Act. Yes. Maybe just quickly, can you tell me what the status of these two bills are in Congress? Yes. So the American uh, Innovation and Choice Online Act uh, has passed with bipartisan support through uh, the Judiciary Committee markup on both the House and the Senate side. And the Open App Markets Act has passed through the Judiciary Committee markup on the Senate side and has been introduced in the House, but hasn't yet made it through its markup. So we think there's a lot of momentum behind these bills. Now, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, what do you think at this point um, are its chances in, in in the full Congress? 
Well, of course, it's always hard (laughs) to know for sure. But what we can look at is the bipartisan support and in particular, the vote in the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Innovation and Choice Online Act passed through committee on a vote of 16 to 6. Um, So that, you know, required getting a fair amount of Republican support in addition to all of the Democratic support that that it received. So I think that's a really good indicator that once um, the senators had time to really learn about the bill and the problem that we're seeking to address, that they recognize the importance of it. And it, you know, passed with an overwhelming majority. So I'm hoping that we can see the same thing on the floor of the Senate. What did you make of the Department of Justice coming out last week in support of this particular bill? Is that, you think, a helpful development? Yes, that's huge. It is not common uh, for federal agencies to endorse legislation. So that uh, that's a big deal. You know, I think uh, one of the things that the bills are doing is giving more tools to our antitrust enforcement agencies to be able to address these very serious competition problems. I was an antitrust lawyer uh, doing antitrust enforcement at the Federal Trade Commission before I came to public knowledge. And so I am intimately aware of the difficulties of bringing an antitrust case and and the limitations of uh, what we can do with those existing tools. So it makes perfect sense uh, that DOJ was interested in this bill, but it's really great news for our effort. One of the critiques I've seen from more right of center organizations around this particular bill is that they characterize it is that antitrust is about keeping firms from using market power to harm consumers, but that this legislation is focused on rivals rather than consumers. Is that a fair characterization of what's going on here? And why do you think that's wrong? Yeah, I don't think that's fair. So the consumer welfare standard, it's honestly a bit of a misnomer. (laughs) It's really not supposed to be only about consumers. And it's often criticized, I think, rightly for being primarily about price, but it's not only about price. It is under current law supposed to take into account impacts on other market participants. Um, One that we talk about a lot is the impact on workers. The consumer welfare standard is supposed to now under existing law take account of workers. Um, And it's supposed to take account of the impact on other businesses. It's about competition, um, not just about consumers and consumer prices. And these bills are also about consumers um, to the extent that antitrust is concerned about consumers, which certainly are, you know, a very important goal of competition is to let consumers choose and and give consumers what we want. Um, And that is also a goal of these bills. Um, you know, public knowledge is a consumer organization. We are representing consumers and that is the, the heart of our interest in these bills. We need to be seeing innovation. And so that's why we're talking about businesses. We want new startups and um, businesses that are interested in trying something new. That's what consumers need. Um, that's what consumers want. Um, so our, our interests are really aligned here uh, with those small businesses that are trying to disrupt the status quo, which I think really isn't working for consumers. So another kind of right of center critique of this is, you know, almost like sort of looking through the, the mirror on the comments that you just made. The argument is that, you know, the tech sector is actually very dynamic at the moment. You see these new platforms and people always point to TikTok. Uh, coming along and and challenging Facebook or YouTube, and that this type of bill may uh, chill that dynamism, 
um, and perhaps kind of create a, a situation where uh, tech firms are, are somehow less competitive globally. Do you hear that type of, of, of rhetoric typically? And, and how do you respond to it? Yeah, we do hear that. So the bills are very narrowly targeted at the largest and most powerful firms. So I really think it's going to open up markets for new small businesses to be able to flourish and thrive. Only the very, very largest uh, firms are going to you know, be subject to these bills and, and be limited by these bills. And I think that's actually going to be a huge boon to our global competitiveness. You know, competition is how we get great new innovations that take the world by storm. And because we haven't been seeing that competition for many years now, the same few companies are in charge. Um, I think we're really missing out on those innovations. And, you know, Europe recently um, agreed to their Digital Markets Act. And I don't want those, those great new disruptive innovations to only be happening in Europe. I want them to be happening here in the United States. So I think we need to pass this antitrust legislation to open up our markets here at home so that we can have that kind of disruptive innovation we really want to see. The last particular kind of, I guess, detracting argument that I'll bring up with you is this idea that these big tech firms need to be big because we need them to help us secure our national security. I think we should look at whether the big tech platforms are currently protecting our national security. Um, I think there's this idea that they are representing American interests abroad. And I think that's just not true. Um, they are companies that are, uh, you know, doing what is best for their bottom line. And um, that doesn't always line up with what uh, the American people might want. You know, I think about the Hong Kong protests. There was uh, an app that everyone was using to coordinate those protests. It was called HK Live. And in the middle of that incredible protest in Hong Kong, Apple shut down the app for iPhones. People with an iPhone couldn't access that app anymore. I don't think that was in the interest of democracy. So I just think we need to we need to really look at, you know, whether this claim is is true. And I think competition is really going to be the answer. So let's move over to the Open App Markets Act, the OMA. This one in particular kind of draws a different set of criticisms really around how it works and the way that it would kind of instruct tech firms to manage uh, their devices and, and kind of create interoperability. Why is this bill so important from your perspective? So this too is about competition and allowing competition to flourish. And you can really see it from the consumer perspective. You know, if you have an iPhone, you're really only seeing the apps that Apple has approved. If someone has a great idea for an app that doesn't comply with what Apple is looking for, as a consumer, you may not be able to access that app on your iPhone at all. So I think that's like a very direct consumer impact that we really want to fix. So one of the criticisms that comes from you know, detractors on this one, and in particular, now I'm, I'm looking at a letter that the a Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, sent to uh, senators, is the idea that you know, app makers really have a responsibility to cure the security of apps uh, on their platforms because so much sensitive information is collected by these apps. 
how do you think you'd address that particular critique? Does the Open App Markets Act you know, make potentially apps less safe? No, it doesn't. And I think this sort of relies on the idea that we can trust Apple to take care of our privacy. And I don't think that's right. If there were another choice for an app store on your iPhone, um, then we might really have competition on privacy. Um, then users could choose. And you know, if, if Apple made a high-profile mistake Um, we might see a lot of people switching to the alternative app store. Right now, uh, I think users are really stuck in a situation where they have to trust Apple, that Apple is, you know, providing them the most privacy protective experience and the most secure experience. And um, we don't trust them anymore. So this, you know, particular letter contains some just, you know, really kind of catastrophic language around what the Open App Markets Act would do. Um, The idea that it would essentially ensure that potentially fraudulent actors gain access to the personal data of millions. What do you see as the primary purpose of of this bill? I'm certain it's not to ensure that fraudulent actors gain access to the personal data of millions. (laughs) That's right. Um, The primary purpose is so that there can be competition on your phone um, so that users have control and can choose the apps that we want. And that if someone wants to offer an alternative, you know, if they don't want to work with Apple's payment processor, if they don't want to be limited in uh, the types of communications that they can have with their own customers, that they will be able to uh, have an alternative way to reach consumers and that consumers will have an alternative way to reach those apps that they want. I think that is going to create a lot more freedom in the system so that Apple's not in control of everything. And that is a big change, um, but I think that will be an important change. There seems to me to be in all of these antitrust fights, just some real primary disagreements about you know, what the harms of these tech platforms really represent or whether they represent any harm at all. It seems like never the twain shall meet uh, on these points of view. There's a, just a very different way of thinking about competition and its implications for the economy and for society more generally. I mean, that's something I struggle with too, because as an antitrust lawyer, I feel like I didn't often have to justify why competition is good um, because we all sort of were on the same page that that competition was the goal. And it was just a question of how best to achieve it. But when you leave that little antitrust bubble, um, we now have to explain why competition is important. So I think competition puts users in the driver's seat. And that is about much more than just low prices. Companies have to listen to what we want. They have to figure out what we want and they have to provide it if there is competition. If they are worried that users are going to leave, they have to behave better. And if they're not worried that users are going to leave, they are not going to behave well. They are just going to do what's best for their bottom line. And competition um, aligns that much better with what the user wants. If they're not fearing competition, there's all kinds of things that a powerful platform can do that is not at all what the user wants. So I think that sort of ties this fight to so many other issues that we're working on. I 
you know, I hope that in a competitive environment that um, companies will be competing on privacy. Um, I hope that they will be competing to offer different content moderation options. Um, I hope that they will be competing to provide a secure experience. I hope they will be providing a diversity of options. We have different life experiences and different ways that we use our technology. And maybe if there was a competitive environment, there would be different products that um, meet all of our different needs. Uh, so I, I really think competition is uh, such an important value, but we do have to drill down on, on what that really means to people. And it's not just prices. Clearly, you're in favor of these two particular acts uh, moving through uh, this year. What else is on your agenda from an antitrust perspective? What else are you trying to push for? These are the two antitrust bills that are showing the most promise right now and, and moving along the fastest. But there was a whole package of antitrust legislation that got marked up on the House side. Um, it included interoperability requirements. It included structural separation. It included um, more funding for the antitrust agencies, which I think is so crucially important. So there's a lot more that we want to do on the antitrust side. And we also need comprehensive privacy legislation. We also need a digital regulator, uh, which is something that PK is spending a lot of time thinking about and working on. Um, so there is a lot more to do, but I think this will be a huge, huge first step if we can get the American Innovation and Choice Online Act and the Open App Markets Act passed into law. We'll be in a much better position to, to achieve those other goals next. The midterms must be on your mind. Yes, yes. This is our key moment of opportunity. You know, there, there's not a lot of time left in Congress. It goes by really fast. Um, and so we really need uh, Congress to make this a priority and, and get this done before the midterms. I think this is our chance. Charlotte, I hope you'll come back and tell me more uh, as these things advance. Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.